Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 46, After Hours with Dr. Diana Glyer, Part 1. Good morning. Welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where normally two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we read Till We Have Faces, but today I have the distinct privilege of hosting an after-hours episode with someone David and I met at the conference in North Carolina last year, Dr. Diana Glyer. Diana Glyer is an award-winning writer who has spent more than 40 years coming through activities and studying old manuscripts. She's a leading expert on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien in her book, The Company They Keep, changed the way we talk about these writers. Her scholarship, her teaching, and her work as an artist all circle back to one common theme. Creativity thrives in community. In 2016, she released a more popular and practical version of the company they keep under the title Bandersnatch. C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, in the creative collaboration of the Inklings. Dr. Glyer, welcome to Pints with Jack. Well, thank you for that. That uh, international symposium last November was an extraordinary experience. The whole thing, Don King and his team, they did a remarkable job. This is a one-shot conference. They really wanted to do something special. And they had the wisdom, I think, just to bring together so many experts and leave them kind of wide open to share the things that are most on their heart. And that talk, to some extent, um, well, maybe one way to look at it is it kind of traces my own engagement with Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings. So I discovered them when I was in high school and became very, very interested in both of these authors, Tolkien first, and then on the heels of that, I discovered C.S. Lewis. And when I found out that these two guys were friends, I, I was absolutely blown away by that. It never occurred to me that my two favorite authors happened to live at the same time in the same place, and they knew each other. And I got really excited about that idea. Um, at that time, I wanted to dig deep and try to answer two questions, which seemed to me to be obvious. Um, what did they say to each other? You know, like that it's at a whole, if, if you were a fly on the wall at the Eagle and Child pub, or listening in on those conversations, what in the world did they talk about? What would it be like to have a Lewis and a Tolkien talking together. And my second question um, was really about their creative work. How did these conversations make a difference in the, in the work that we are doing? So when I started the talk at, at Montreat, I wanted to give that background, but what I discovered the deeper I researched uh, these guys was how very important and practical their friendship was to the kind of creative work that all of us do, whether we're writers or we're scholars, we're podcasters, um, you know, we, we want to make breakthroughs in business or in science or in technology. What I learned is that there's something very practical about the kinds of decisions that Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings made as they gathered together regularly. And I can say you did it fantastically and you continue to do in all of your talks because in preparation, I was watching many other ones and I can relate. I, there was two things that kept coming to my mind from the importance of community and collaboration as you're talking. One, I 
uh, when I'm not doing this podcast, my main job is programming with artificial intelligence in the markets. And so it's, cr- it's using creativity to come up with ways to analyze data. And I thought to myself, a lot of it is spent on my own. But it's the real breakthroughs come when I'm having conversations with others. I need the alone time, but I also need the community time for those real transformational thoughts to come. And then when you talked about your prayer group, I was like, oh my goodness, this is just amazing how they inspire and encourage each other in their works. And so you, you continue to spread that message so well, and that just resonated and was so clear in everything that I listened to you speak or talk at. I I appreciate that because I think that one of the most crippling concepts that uh, has gripped us, especially as Christians, is the idea that uh, the solitary genius really is the way that breakthroughs happen, that we have this sort of, uh, it's sometimes called, um, we have a sort of romantic idea, a false idea that an individual is working away in the lab night after night or a a uh, writer is typing away in the attic night after night after stormy night. And then all of a sudden there's a kind of a bolt from the blue and then there's that breakthrough. And what I can tell you is that's not normal. Normal, normal creativity throughout history comes when we connect as scripture says, when iron sharpens iron, as we call forth the very best in each other. And one of the things I mentioned in that talk that was a, a huge kind of aha moment for me is realizing that we're physiologically hardwired for this kind of connecting, that God made our bodies and our brains so that when we do get together, when we do meet face to face, literally more of our brain comes online. Um, Think about this. Think about a time when you've worked all morning on a problem or an issue and you're struggling with it and you're trying to make it. If you're a writer, you're just trying to make that story work or uh, someone who's in a, a business field. You're just trying to find the solution, the bigger context for some problem that you need to solve and go forward. You give up and you say, I'm just going to forget it. I'm going to go to lunch with my friend. And your friend says to you uh, over over coffee and lunch, uh, so what you working on? You go, man, I'm really stuck on this thing. And they go, really? Tell me more about that. And you're like, well, I'm trying to figure out how to this and this. But if I do this, then then this would happen. And then I could do it that way. And all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute. Why didn't those three hours on my own? Why didn't I come to that place? And it's because we really can, simply by being present for one another's stories and being involved in one another's process, We call these things forth out of one another in a beautiful way because God made us for community. And that's why I get so excited and so passionate about this idea. There are people who are trying to go it alone and they're in bondage to the lie that that's the way that it works. And uh, we can look closely at the kinds of decisions that Lewis and Tolkien made to meet regularly. And we can see how that led to the kinds of things that they accomplished. So you have this idea. Um, these two geniuses, right? Um, how did they help each other? How did they support each other? And what was the nature of that? Uh, and, and I think that their model of being involved at all stages of the creative process is really powerful for us. Well, I feel like our listeners could just turn it off right now and they've already gotten everything they needed. (laughs) That was amazing. Uh, now, listeners, you see why I'm so excited for this and to dive into this. We haven't even gotten into the meat of this yet, and I'm already inspired. 
So before we jump into the heart of this, let's do our usuals. Our listeners know we have the quote of the week, but uh, per actually Dr. Glyer's suggestion, a really we're going to do something a little bit more fun here, and we're going to read a few quotes, and we're going to answer the question of whether Lewis said it or not. And this was inspired by William Flaherty, as you guys know. There's a lot of misquotes of C.S. Lewis. And then we're going to have one that he did say, but we're going to ask ourselves, is it true? And so let's start with the first one. You are never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. Mm, Now that quote used to be on the wall at one of my favorite pizza restaurants. And so a pizza restaurant wouldn't put a quote on the wall unless it was true, right? (laughs) Of course. I mean, that's the standard, right? It's that right that right that before is, Wikipedia are the standards. Oh, oh, ouch, you're hurting my teacher heart right now. Uh, that is false. Lewis did not say that. It sounds like Walt Disney, but I'm not even sure where that one came from. That is not C.S. Lewis. <laughs> it sounds so good, though. Uh, it doesn't sound like Lewis nope. to me. That is correct. Getting over a painful experience is much like crossing monkey bars. You have to let go at some point in order to move forward. Well, it's certainly true that Lewis went through a lot of painful experiences in his life, right? He struggled and he suffered a great deal. He had a tough time, Um, but he didn't say that. And monkey bars, that's not even a British expression. (laughs) That is not something C.S. Lewis said. Oh, I love it. Well done. And the last one, no one ever influenced Tolkien. You might as well try to influence a bandersnatch. Oh, that sounds so familiar to me, Matt. Where have I heard that one before? <laughs> so that quotation, taken out of context, is in fact something that C.S. Lewis said. An American scholar and professor wrote him a letter and asked him about the mutual influence of the group. And Lewis responded, no one ever influenced Tolkien. So. I looked at that quote when I discovered it the first time and I thought, well, that's it. That closes the door. That's the final word on the statement. But like a lot of things taken out of context, the emphasis there is wrong. And the the key, I think, to uh, understanding that, well, first of all, you have to know what a bandersnatch is, right? Mm -hmm. A bandersnatch is from uh, Lewis Carroll's poem, Jabberwocky. And it's a mythical character that we know is very fast and ornery. Right. So influencing Tolkien was like influencing a bandersnatch. Right. Something that that uh, doesn't like to be caught, doesn't like to be uh, influenced or uh, or pursued. I I think the fact that C.S. Lewis is quoting Jabberwock is our first clue that perhaps he didn't mean that as a scholarly analysis of the entire literary influence over a period of 30 years. That's my first clue. Mm-hmm. The second clue is this idea of influence. What what do we mean by influence? And that's the, the topic that I tackle in my book, The Company They Keep. And I think the idea of influence most often means to imitate. Or we, we mean it in that way. If we say that one literary work is, is uh, influenced, let's say, by J.K. Rowling, what we mean is that this book sort of has the flavor or the texture of a Harry Potter, even though it goes in a slightly different direction. By influence, we mean similarity. It's the same sort of thing. And I think what Lewis and the other Inklings were railing against when they were accused of influence 
uh, is to say that we really didn't become more like one another as a result of our association. In fact, like a great writing group, each individual author found their own authentic voice at a much higher level than they would have if they hadn't had the influence, the help, the support, the critique, the challenge, the accountability of one another. So what Lewis is talking about is similarity. My writing didn't become more like Tolkien's. Tolkien's writing didn't become more like mine. And if you look at other comments by the Inklings about influence, well, there's a lot of the theoretical and philosophical um, literary analysis that we could do. What we do see is that these statements are bundled together with claims about similarity. So right after this, Lewis says, we weren't very alike. Our work wasn't very alike. The kind of thing that we're doing, the kind of vision that we have, it's not very similar. So the question he's answering is not, did your friendship make a difference to your creative work? He's answering the question, did you guys become more alike? Did you start borrowing ideas from each other? Um, was there that kind of influence? So you kind of ended up doing different versions of the same thing. And all of the inklings very, very emphatically denied that form of influence. But when you ask them about other kinds of influence, let's just take encouragement then you get a completely different story. So you ask uh, Lewis, did you encourage Tolkien? Oh my goodness, yes. It was <laughs> completely transformative. Did you offer Tolkien some ideas, suggestions, and directions on how the work might be improved? Well, there's, there's tons of, of examples of that. Uh, one of the simplest ones I like because it's a, a research uh, approach that anybody can do. So if you look at the rough drafts of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which are available through the History of Middle-Earth series edited by Christopher Tolkien, you can find published and available to anyone rough drafts, first drafts, second drafts, third drafts of the Lord of the Rings. And you can compare them to the version that was published and you can note the differences. So here's, here's a, a, a challenge. Uh, when Lewis heard the earliest chapters of The Lord of the Rings, he had a number of criticisms. All of the Inklings did. And one of the things they said is, there's too much dialogue, not enough action, not enough narrative. Now, when they told Tolkien this, he didn't say, oh my goodness, thank you so much. I can't wait to go home and fix that, right? <laughs> was, it's my book. I'm going to do it my way. I cannot believe you people. And then he went home. And after he calmed down, he thought about it. And he said, you know, the guys are probably right. Let me take another crack at it with that advice in mind. And we can see the result of this. I love this, Matt, because this is what I call a perfect sequence. We have the draft. We know specifically what the comment was, too much dialogue, not enough narrative. And then we have the published revisions. And what happens when you count up the number of words that are dialogue in the first draft and that are dialogue in the revised versions, he cuts it down by more than a third. It's oh. great, you know, there's <laughs> influence, right? But it's not the influence of imitation. It's the influence of change as a result of an observation by an invested reader who says, 
this is good. It's not good enough. You can do better. Here's a direction. Here's a way out. And that's what good critique does, by the way. It doesn't say this is bad. You know, (laughs) it doesn't say this is boring. It doesn't say I don't like this. Good (laughs) critique says, you know what? This will be better if you try this thing. And then all of a sudden the writer's like, oh, now I know what to do. Now I know what to try. And then that gives them um, traction, as it were, yes. for moving forward in that creative process. Maybe you've experienced it in, your, in the work that you do. Somebody says, you know, uh, you're, you're sharing about trying to do some problem solving at your job. You don't want someone to say, well, that was stupid or that's no. a dead end or that'll that would never crush work. Me. Right? <laughs> yeah, <Or> no. <laughs> why do you think that would, you know, you know what that, what you want to say, you want someone to say, have you tried this? Have you, have you thought about this? Might you consider this? And the fact is that kind of advice gets us unstuck. It gets us unlocked, right? And once we have a little bit of traction, we might not go in exactly that direction, but it gets us moving again. And that's the power of really, really good critique. And I can, it's, it's funny as you describe that dynamic between Lewis and Tolkien, I can relate to that. When someone gives me critique, to be blunt, at first, I usually push back. And there is a balance because if you believe in what you're doing, you are going to defend it. But then typically I'll go home and sometimes I even push back a little bit too hard. Maybe that's the bandersnatch within me coming up, but then I'll take a step back and at night I'll reflect and I'll go, you know what? That was a good comment. Okay. Yep. All right. I need to take that into consideration. And so I can see that going on between Lewis and Tolkien a little bit too, probably. Sure. But Lewis doesn't see that that's the whole process. What Lewis sees mm-hmm. is the pushback, right? Yes. So, um, but we, I think we all have stories of times when someone told us that something would be better if we went in a particular direction. And our immediate reaction was that flash of anger and that resistance and that protectiveness. And that's appropriate, as you say. Uh, When I think about authors, right, the word author and the word authority are very closely connected, right? Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, You don't have to be a linguist like Tolkien to see the connection there. So when someone's criticizing something I wrote, I'm the authority. I have the last word, right? Right. And my first reaction is generally not gracious when someone tries to rip it apart. However, that's only the initial reaction. And afterwards, in the cool of the evening, you know, when cooler heads prevail, it's amazing how much it's like, well, I can maybe give that a try. And I've got lots of examples in my own work where my first reaction was stupid teacher or um, <laughs> reader. You know, it's like, of course you didn't understand it. That's because you're in it. You know, it's like, <laughs> yep. That's, that's kind of where we come from. But there is a graciousness in later uh, being able to reflect on that and to say, well, what might happen? Uh, for those of, of uh, your listeners who are writers, Here's what I recommend. This comes from an experience I had. I had an article I'd been working on for several months, and I I was tortured over it. And I finally got it, so I loved it. You know, that wonderful place. It's like, this is finally done. This is finally (laughs) really good. Gave it to a friend. He read, and he said, this doesn't work. I, no, I was so mad. I was so mad. I'm I'm hitting send tomorrow. What do you mean? (laughs) It doesn't work. And and, uh, made some comments on it. And I thought, 
you are wrong, buddy. You are so wrong. I've never seen anybody be wrong as wrong as you are. <laughs> you know, very gracious, very open to someone who focuses on collaboration and community. But uh, I went home. And I was so <laughs> mad. I was just furious. Um, so the guy's name is Mike. And so I said, all right, Mike, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write Mike's stupid version. And I'm going to save the document. And I'm going to write Mike's stupid version so I can prove to you just how misguided this piece of advice is. About two hours into it, I'm looking at it going, oh, oh, oh. Um, so, <laughs> so he was right. He was absolutely and utterly right. I was wrong. Uh, the next day I sent it to him uh, with a sheepish thank you note. And that's the version that was eventually published. And I was, in retrospect, profoundly changed and profoundly grateful. But the fact that we don't have that as an initial reaction to the critique that we get, that's not where the story ends. And we really have to look deeper into all of the various uh, stages of the creative process to see where those seeds of comments become actually rooted and bear good fruit in one another's work. So you, you mentioned that process that you went through as you were identifying the, or trying to answer that, the questions. And so you're diving into the primary sources. You're seeing the first draft, second draft, third draft. When did this, this start and how many years was this stretched out? Because I'd have to imagine, first of all, the final s products of a lot of these inkling authors that you dug into, there's already, how many are there actually? How many inklings? Or uh, books that they wrote? Oh, how many books? There's about, there's a little over 300. Oh my goodness. So, so you're probably coming through a lot of these different things. Plus you're not just coming through the final, but different drafts. And so how, how what, 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 walk us through that a little bit in that journey and that process, because that would take years, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is quite the research. Sure. Uh, Here's what I can tell you. I get impatient with academic arguments sometimes because what happens is academics have a tendency to argue at the level of interpretation. I read this and it means that. No, it means this. No, it means this. No, it means this. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they're arguing about the interpretation or how you analyze and understand something. When I see a disagreement in terms of interpretation or analysis in a literary work or actually in any kind of scholarly setting, my impulse is to avoid the fight and dig deep into the factual level. What do we know in terms of the primary material that will help us to shed light on this debate? And so whether the Inklings influenced each other was a debate for a long time. And Humphrey Carpenter wrote his um, you know, groundbreaking book, The Inklings, which is a great biographical study of these authors. And he concluded they had no influence on each other based on everything that was available. And so that became the kind of under, understood or accepted way of looking at these authors. In fact, it became so accepted that the first time I started to share some of my research on the issue of influence, I actually got booed. I got booed off a of stage. Uh, How things have changed. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of one of my talks um, at a, an academic conference, a woman leapt to her feet at the end of the, the talk 
and said C.S. Lewis was a genius and he didn't need any help from anyone. So a very defensive posture. Yes. But anyway, so if that's the current um, understanding of something, my approach is to say, well, is there part of this that we're missing? Are we looking at it from the right direction? Is there more primary evidence that hasn't been brought to the table yet? And so that's the work that I, I do and the work that I love is reading through um, diaries, reading through letter collections, reading through old manuscript versions and looking at notes in the margins. Uh, and when you come across something that C.S. Lewis wrote and in the margin it says that this was something that Charles Williams had a question about and he needed to clarify or something that Tolkien wrote, uh, and you see that one of the inklings came in with a question or comment, and then you see him changing in response to that. It's pretty remarkable. So that's my process. As far as the inklings are concerned, it's just really remarkable how closely they read each other's material and how much mm -hmm. input they had on it. So they did this for um, about 17, 18 years, that they were meeting once or twice a week, listening to one another's work, talking about the ideas that were in them and giving one another that kind of very, very concrete and specific advice that writers thrive on. So what were some examples of, you, you, you mentioned some of them in the beginning, of Lewis and Tolkien's specific influences they gave on, on each other uh, in in. Was it Lewis, one of the ones that did the Hobbit, like in non-Hobbit situations? Was yeah. he that one? Yeah, that okay. story. You want me to tell that story? <laughs> I love that one because that's like the entire book. <laughs> I question if the book happens without that. <laughs> um, if, if I had to um, to ask what is the, what is the biggest difference um, that the Inklings made on another Inkling, it would be Tolkien's influence on C.S. Lewis's journey to faith. Because there's no bigger influence, right, than the um, uh, the coming to the point of salvation and gaining a well-rounded, robust, and authentic uh, understanding of who God is and how God works in our life. But one of the really big stories about how the Inklings influenced one another's work uh, has to do with the Lord of the Rings. And the Lord of the Rings never would have been finished without input from all of the inklings. I really want to um, emphasize that. It wasn't just Lewis. It was all the guys getting together and listening to the story. Uh, what, one of the things that you have, Matt, that a lot of people don't understand is the influence of anticipation. And as a scholar who focuses on primary documents, this is a really tough one, the, the, the influence of anticipation. So um, when you were preparing to do an interview with me for this podcast. You read certain things, you listened to certain things because there's a difference in preparing for a time to talk with me than one of your other illustrious guests. Where anticipation of the kinds of things that I'm interested, the kind of person that I am, that shaped your preparation for this time that we're talking uh, right now. And so think about a writer who knows that on Thursday night, they're going to be reading their text out loud, and there's going to be these particular listeners with their particular soapboxes and uh, bugaboos and concerns and issues, 
and you're writing knowing that they're going to be the ones listening. And so Tolkien is going to be writing his story chapter after chapter, knowing that Warren Lewis is going to be there and Hugo Dyson is going to be there. And knowing that each of these individuals has certain quirks and interests and issues, and that's going to shape the way that Tolkien anticipates um, writing for that group. But back to the idea of the the direction of, of The Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien writes The Hobbit, starts as a children's story. Some other friends get a hold of it. They're really excited about it, and they pressure him to finish it. He finishes The Hobbit, submits it. Publisher loves it. It's a great success, and the publisher says, great. Here's what we need you to do. Uh, we need you to write another book just like it, but different. And... <laughs> Small task. Tolkien says, I I don't have any more stories about hobbits. And they go back to him again and again. And finally, finally, basically rolls his eyes and he says, okay, 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 I'll, I'll try. But he has no enthusiasm for this project whatsoever. Uh, But he decides to give it a try. He uses the working title of the new Hobbit. That's how out of ideas he is. He doesn't even have a title idea. He calls it the new Hobbit. I wrote the old Hobbit and I'm going to write the new Hobbit. I suppose if it had been a trilogy, there would be the newer. (laughs) I I don't know. But anyway, the new Hobbit. He starts writing it. He writes about birthday parties, fireworks, um, mischievous Hobbits, lots of dialogue. Uh, and uh, and so the story goes until the hobbits sort of get up, leave the Shire. They haven't seen Gandalf in a little bit. They're hiding in the roots of the tree. They hear a horse coming. They're terrified out of their minds. The horse and the rider come up, and it's Gandalf on a white horse, and they're all together again, and then they're headed off for the next phase of their adventures. Uh, at that point, Tolkien's like, I hate this book. <laughs> It's like the beginning. Seriously. You know, I am dead in the water here. Like nothing is happening and I don't know what to do. So he has lunch with C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis listens to him whine and complain about how bad his start is on this new project. Tolkien says, I'm going to give this up because I'm bored out of my mind and I can't write well when I myself am not interested in the story. And Lewis says, well, uh, I can tell you what the problem is. Tolkien's uh, a little taken aback, right? (laughs) How dare you simplify it so quickly? (laughs) Lewis says, look, uh, hobbits are only interesting when they are in un-hobbit-like situations. Now, Tolkien usually pushes back. At this point, I don't think he does. I think that's one of those moments where he goes, huh. What an interesting perspective. Hobbits are only interesting when they're in unhobbit-like situations. And so this is one of those, another one of those for, excuse me, this is another one of those situations where as a researcher, I'm um, so over the moon to have found all of the details of where Tolkien was at with the manuscript, uh, what Tolkien said what Lewis said, and how Tolkien responded. We've got the whole narrative. Tolkien goes home that night, and he rewrites the scene that he's just been working on. The hobbits are out of the shire. They're on the road. They're hiding in the roots of the tree. They hear a rider come from the distance. They don't know where Gandalf is. They're scared out of their minds. they got no one to look out for them. 
And then this horse appears, but in the revision, in the revision, <laughs> the horse is now black. The rider is now black. The rider makes a weird snuffling noise as it's looking for these little hobbits. And then it takes off. And all of a sudden, Tolkien is animated by this breakthrough. That's an unhobbit-like situation. That's a real yep. danger. So now the narrative has to answer some really big questions. What is this black rider? Why does he want these little hobbit guys? And what happened to Gandalf? Like, why hasn't Gandalf come back? And so the narrative just races forward with this heavier, more serious purpose. And that's the point where the new hobbit becomes the Lord of the Rings and takes on not only a new direction, a, a darker and heavier purpose, but Tolkien writes that the book has started to write itself. Wow. He's so excited. He himself, as uh, a writer, can't wait to continue to work on it because he wants to discover what happens next. And that kind of enthusiasm for the story and that kind of uncertainty um, is what propels him forward as a creative artist because now he himself is not just amused by Hobbit talk, but deeply, deeply interested in the story that he has to tell. Well, piggybacking off of that Hobbit's talk part, in the, and that's what interested Tolkien. I listened to one of your talks that was, it was a, a shorter one, or maybe it was a segment of one, but it was when you talked about the last chapter, and I think it was labeled what every Tolkien nerd needs to know. And it's, and we'll link it, listeners, into the show notes, because it another one that just inspired me, it really hit home, and I do want to actually say thank you for that talk, because sometimes as life goes on and you're working, it's easy to get caught up in the day to day of life. And you brought back to the values that Tolkien really wanted. Cause you were talking a bit and I believe in it of the movie versus um, the book and the values that Tolkien was really trying to espouse in that book. And then the last chapter really emphasizing that. Can you share some of that? Because that was so inspiring to me of what's really important in life. And it was just such a beautiful imagery. Like it touched a longing and a chord deep inside of me. Oh, that's really cool to hear. The The last chapter of The Lord of the Rings is beautiful. And uh, many of us are sad that it wasn't published in Lord of the Rings when Lord of the Rings was published. So the talk that you are referring to is called The Secret Every Tolkien Nerd Knows. And uh, it was a very short talk as part of a longer evening that we did at a local church uh, celebrating um, the wonderful music uh, for the Peter Jackson films, but also offering some tidbits that many people don't know about uh, the Lord of the Rings as Tolkien wrote it. So when Tolkien got to the end of the Lord of the Rings, uh, the, the return of the hobbits right, to Hobbiton, uh, and to their homes and to their lives. So much of Tolkien's goal is that these individuals have been taken out of their usual circumstance, have been through this extraordinary adventure to save the world. But, but what has really changed is not just the circumstance of Middle Earth, but their own hearts. They themselves have been transformed by the things that they have suffered. And not for themselves, but for a purpose. They've been brought back to the Shire because they need now to be the kind of hobbits who make a difference in their 
home context, right? Mm. The way that God works in us and says, now that you are changed, now that you are stronger, now that you are wiser, go home and make a difference in your immediate context, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis said that his mission statement was to take the eternal truths of the gospel and translate them to his immediate context. And I can't think of a better mission statement right? uh, for <laughs> each of us. The things that we've learned, the things that we've learned often through suffering and hardship, now we're to take those and we're to share them and to transform our immediate context in ways that are big and small. And so that transformation of the Shire is very important to Tolkien and it's not a part of the story that Peter Jackson wants to tell. And that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with them having sort of different directions and themes that they want to go because the mediums that they're using are so different. But for Tolkien, he wants to emphasize home and the, and the preciousness of home and the value of, of home. And so he writes a, a final chapter that continues Sam's story, that tells a little bit of the story of Sam and his wife, Rosie, and their children. And so the final scene uh, of Lord of the Rings, as Tolkien wrote it, was this very homey, warm reflection years after the Lord of the Rings ends of Sam and his wife thinking back uh, to how hard it was and how glad they are to be uh, together. And it's really quite wonderful in that particular podcast. I read it out loud. It's in the company they keep as well if people want to read it. But it's beautiful and it's tender. And it is the heart of Tolkien's story. The heart of the story is home and family. That's really what's worth fighting for. Uh, well, Tolkien read that last chapter to the Inklings, and they didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you can make up your own reasons, I suppose. We don't know why. They just said they didn't like it. And, Are they uh, cold-hearted? I don't it's so know. beautiful. <laughs> I don't know. They didn't like it. Tolkien, uh, as he often did, this is another important thing for your listeners to remember. As Tolkien often did, he, he took it around to a few other people. Outside of the Inklings group, he didn't have all his eggs in one basket. All his critique did not come from that group. He shared his work with a number of different people. So they all said, you know what? It, it's too much. Uh, it, it, it's over the top. It, it's a little um, maybe sentimental. I don't know. Uh, maybe it is it just too sharp a contrast to the battle-torn images that are, are so important, uh, the, the sense of struggle. Might have been just too much over the other direction. I, I don't know. I don't know. But for whatever reason, Tolkien took it out, and he regretted it. Later, he wrote that uh, he regretted, in that case, following the advice of his critics and leaving out that beautiful last chapter. So I hope that some of your listeners might take a look for it. It really is quite glorious. And I think that supports your thesis that he was influenced in different ways, maybe because there clearly people told him to take it out and he did. <laughs> so he could be. Yeah, you, um, you mentioned earlier the, the, the profound influence that Tolkien had on Lewis from a faith perspective. And I've heard this a few times. I think I've heard Don King might've been one of the individuals that talked about this. Um, 
of the true myth. And I'd be curious if you were just to expand on that for our listeners. I think it's so beautiful, their relationship. And that is the most important way someone influences someone else. We, we think about uh, evangelism usually in a fairly combative kind of way. We think about it as marshalling evidence for the faith, proving the faith uh, in what's sometimes called classical apologetics. Uh, I remember when I uh, was first investigating the possibility that Christianity was true, I was reading a lot of Josh McDowell uh, and books like Who Moved the Stone, Evidence for the Resurrection, those kinds of books, that kind of approach. And those were very uh, persuade. Those were very persuasive for me. Uh, I, as I read and as I studied the arguments, I was persuaded that Christianity was true, that it really was the best explanation for this world that we live in. Uh, Lewis is well known as a defender of the faith and of arguing with this kind of reason, uh, reasons and, and argument. But what's interesting about his relationship with um, uh, with Tolkien and with the faith in general is that the thing that actually sort of tipped him over to the faith is narrative, is a story. Uh, and the way that Tolkien did that, besides living his Tolkien's faith uh, before Lewis in a way that was compelling and praying every day of his life for Lewis's salvation, uh, Tolkien also helped him to understand the idea of the stories that Jack loved best, the stories of uh, dying and rising God and other mythological tales that seem to repeat this image again and again. And what he helped Lewis understand is that all of these stories embedded in our weather patterns and our seasons and our ancient stories and our newer myths are signposts pointing to deep truth about the nature of the universe. And what Tolkien helped Lewis understand is that all of these signposts were pointing to a story of death and resurrection that was historically accurate and absolutely and utterly true. And that was the, the point where Lewis was convinced uh, and became um, uh, committed to the faith. It was several uh, years later before he kind of uh, went deeper into Christianity, per se. His, his conversion story is a long one. It took him a very, very long time, several years, in fact. So there are little steps along the way. But the idea of true myth was very important to his conversion. And I love that it's Tolkien that does it because one question I was going to ask in the beginning, um, but I loved the direction we were going was Lewis's first impression of Tolkien. And, <laughs> and I think it's so fitting right now to, to, to bring that back in right now. Can you share his first impression of Tolkien? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so Lewis and Tolkien met at all places at a faculty meeting. So I don't know if you have ever been at a faculty meeting, but it tends not to be a warm, fuzzy place to make friends. <laughs> uh, so they meet at a faculty meeting and their first impressions are not good. They are, they are just not good. So I've looked all over the place. I have no idea what Tolkien thought of Lewis. He never mentions the first meeting or even the early days at all. And so all I can uh, assume is that it just wasn't that big a deal to meet C.S. Lewis. 
Um, Lewis, on the other hand, has become somewhat notorious for his uh, response to Tolkien. Uh, he says that he is a pale, fluent chap. Not bad, but he needs a good smack. <laughs> So there's their beginning, and you would think, well, that's not a very auspicious way uh, for two friends to kind of get get along. Uh, the truth is, from that moment, it actually gets worse, because part of what that faculty meeting was for was trying to make decisions about what books undergraduates should read in order to be English majors, basically. And Lewis and Tolkien completely disagreed and debated hotly. Uh, two very, very different points of view. So it started off bad. It got really worse. Uh, and you wonder, well, how, how did that even get turned around? Uh, it, it is exciting for me that the way things changed was because they decided to get together in a small group to talk about literature. So one of the most life-changing things in my life has been getting together with other friends to read good books together. Uh, if you can imagine someone reading a book, talking about it with a good friend, getting some other friends gathered around and having them add their two cents worth to the perspective of that book, that was the forge of friendship, was a common love for certain texts. So they got together to read old Icelandic sagas in the original Old Norse and to translate <laughs> them together. That may not be the book club. Uh, you may want to stick with Till We Have Faces. Or <laughs> the Great Divorce. <laughs> the Great Divorce. <laughs> the other one. But they decided to read the old Norse myth. And both uh, Lewis and Tolkien had loved these stories since they were children. And um, I love it because uh, in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis talks about how lovers uh, turn their gaze upon one another. And that is the... That is the move of romance, is to be engaged with one another. But friendship starts when you turn and gaze together in the same direction, at the same object. Uh, and so in this book club called the Coal Biters, Lewis and Tolkien were standing shoulder to shoulder, gazing in the same direction. And they were looking toward what's called northernness or the old Norse myths that uh, had inspired them for, for a lifetime. And it was that that uh, created that strong bond between them. When that group uh, uh, disbanded, and, and I, I think this is an important point when we're thinking about the nature of the inkling. So the group that they were in called the Coal Biters was a project group for a time. It's a short term kind of thing. And once they finished their reading, the group disbanded. There wasn't any drama, there wasn't any problem. It was called together for a time, for a season. And so often writers groups, good writers groups can be the same thing. They can be temporary, called together for a time to study an idea, to work on a particular text, to accomplish a, a specific thing. So the coal, coal biters happily disband. And uh, Lewis and Tolkien are like, hey, I, I kind of like talking with you. Could we, could we kind of keep on meeting just one-on-one? -on -one? This is one of the most important steps in the formation of the Inklings. And I love to emphasize it every chance I get, because we tend to think that the Inklings got together because there was some kind of, a, you know, the skies open in a Monty Python kind of way and God came down and there was, you know, earthquakes and you know, I don't know. We think that it's like all of a sudden there's this divine convergence 
17 geniuses. Ta-da! You know. Uh, <laughs> that's how I assume it is. You're telling me it didn't? No. Oh, I'm heartbroken. And that's not how these things happen. When you look at other dyads or other powerful groups, that's not how they start. They start so often uh, with what's sometimes called the power of two, the magic of two individuals who just say, hey, I think hanging out is good for me. And I, I really like to see you more often. And can we just make it our habit to get together on a regular basis and chat? So they decided to get together on Monday mornings and they would sit around and they would chat. They chat about school politics. They talk about other books that they were reading, um, talk a little bit about uh, this and that, maybe the news. And then they would go and they'd grab lunch. It is as simple as, as that. Uh, starting a group or thinking about a group so often starts with just two folks who say, I like the way you think. I learn a lot from you. Could we get together and have coffee once a week? Could we get together every Thursday at 4.30 and go for a walk together? Could we, um, you know, um, could we get on Zoom uh, on Saturday mornings and just kind of check in with each other and how the how the work is coming along. So that was the the kernel or the start. That was the beginning of the group we know as the Inklings. It was simple. It was lunch. It was two ordinary guys. And the other thing I like to emphasize is that they didn't know they were C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and destined to become two of the best-selling authors of all time. At that point, they'd <laughs> hardly written or published anything. They were just a couple of teachers at school who found that their imagination was enlivened by the time that they spent together. So they just decided to start hanging out a little bit. Um, if I can, I can tell you how that turned into a critique group. Yes, I would love that. And I, I was actually going to be my follow up because I love when, well, I will just stop there. I think I know you're going to, I love that. So yes, please do. <laughs> so these, um, these lunches were great and, and they, uh, they liked them. Uh, but in December of 1929, there came a turning point for these two authors. And so we don't have uh, a lot of detail of this particular lunch that these two guys uh, enjoyed, but I, here's how I imagine it. So my imaginative interpretation <laughs> of this key event. So it's December, which means that it's wet and it's cold because it's Oxford and they have their conversation and they go to lunch at the uh, Eastgate Hotel, which is one of their favorite places to hang out. And Tolkien has been obsessed with uh, working on a poem called The Lay of Lathian. The Lay of Lathian tells the story of Baron and Luthien, and some of your uh, listeners may know that that's a story that's at the heart of the Cimmerillion. And uh, there's a lot we could talk about about the importance of that. Um, but maybe uh, just to emphasize, Tolkien is, is what we think of as a binge writer. So we think about different kinds of writers and different kinds of writing styles. I'm a very methodical writer. C.S. Lewis was a very methodical writer. I show up every day, I write my pages, I get on with my day. Uh, Tolkien wasn't like that. Tolkien would be the kind of guy he'd be worrying and fretting and then he'd put like 14 hours into something and he'd be <laughs> up all night doing something. He wrote in these big, long, committed chunks. So he'd been putting in this kind of binge, obsessive work on this poem, The Lay of Lathian. So Lewis and Tolkien have their lunch. Tolkien gets up to leave. 
he grabs his coat and he notices he happens to have the poem with him, the manuscript of it. And for some reason, this may be the divine spark, right? Not in a whirlwind or a, a lightning storm, but in a very, very small act of courage. Tolkien pulls out this manuscript and he hands it to C.S. Lewis. And he says, uh, so I've, I've, I've written this poem. Um, would, would you like to read it? And again, in the whole history of literary accomplishment, maybe the neatest thing that Tolkien ever did was simply to invite someone else into his creative process. That's, that's raw courage right there, because when we hear yeah. our writing, we're just like, here's my heart on a plate for you to step on. You know, I mean, we're just all like that with the writing that we do. And Tolkien more than, I think, almost anybody, because he wrote these things late at night in his garage at his desk and had been at this for decades. So he shares with his friend Lewis, and, uh, and Lewis takes it home, and Lewis loves it, and Lewis writes several letters in response and giving him feedback on it. But then Lewis does something that I think in some ways is equally courageous, and he starts bringing some of his own poetry. So they start sharing poems back and forth. At that point, both of them saw themselves as poets more than as fiction writers or scholar, uh, scholarly writers. And those exchanges are so successful that they start inviting other people into that circle, and that's the start of the Inklings. It starts small. Uh, and it is based on simple, raw courage, the courage that says, you want to come in and see my messy draft here in the midst of the process, uh, I could use a hand. I love, it starts small. And the other word that I kept thinking of is it starts with that act of vulnerability and it's, it's, you do feel exposed. And would you say it's fair to, to say for a group to continue that vulnerability needs to be tenderly held. I mean, when you're, when you're, they're constantly sharing their works and there's that, that space needs to be sacred almost and protected. And I would imagine when that starts getting jeopardy, that can be tough on a group. And so it's very important. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it, it's a risky thing when we share our work, especially as I say, when we're in the midst of it, when we're in the thick of it, when the ink isn't really even dry on the pages. And we're not even sure how the story ends. But that's where the magic happens because that's where things are still pliable. That's where we can really have, in many ways, the greatest impact on one another uh, as we uh, accept the role of resonators. Resonators is a, a really key term for me. So I think successful groups have to cultivate a culture of resonators. So a resonator is... Um, someone who fundamentally understands what it is you are attempting and commits to companioning with you in bringing that about. And I think that that's really an important role. I, I, I wanna emphasize that has nothing to do necessarily with critique. It has nothing to do with um, status, um, being an expert, any of those things. It's the way that we bear witness to one another's creative vision. And we do that in a way that is a, a, a kind of commitment to each other. We say, I'm, I'm with you, I'm hanging in there through the ups and downs of the messy creative process. 
Now, that may involve critique. It may involve confrontation. It may involve advice or editing, uh, problem solving together, prayer for one another. It may involve all those things. But fundamentally, what makes it work is that at the base, there's a faith that I have your best interest in mind and I am committed, I am devoted to companioning with you through the ups and downs of that process. So friends, on that note, we are going to bring this part one to an end to finish hearing Dr. Glyer talk about the way Tolkien influenced Lewis spiritually bringing him to Christ. I thought it was a beautiful way to split these two episodes up. Our conversation went on a lot longer than this because as you already know, she is incredibly brilliant, fascinating, inspiring, and I just didn't want to stop talking with her. So we're going to Stop this one, part one here, and next week we're going to open it back up and go even deeper into the inklings and the influences they had on each other and how it began and the collaborative process. So you definitely don't want to miss that. That is going to be coming in part two. So we are going to sign this one off. I want to say at the end of this, as we always do, thank you so much to our Patreon subscribers. You guys are absolutely fantastic these things, the editing, turning this into two doubles the cost of it. But we, you know, we don't think about that because you guys are awesome helping us cover those costs. We want to say thank you to our top tier subscribers, Chris, John, Kate, Rowdy. You guys are fantastic. Um, And we just invite all of you guys to join us next time as we go into part two of this. And we will be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.